Hey everyone, and thank you for joining me for episode 23 of the Mark Geist Show. Uh, I have an important thing I want to talk about. I've discussed some about where I live and uh, what my story is throughout this show, but I'm currently living in North Dakota. I live in Fargo, and the big story out here is the Dakota Access Regional Pipeline and the, and the protests surrounding it. And it's obviously a huge issue out here, and I think it gets more coverage out here from both sides of the spectrum. But nationally, the story has been, this is big oil, big oil against the little guy. And so everybody is running to defend the little guy because that's what we're conditioned to do, I guess. And I just want to implore people to not allow that overly simplistic dichotomy to drive your thinking about this issue. Uh, I would like more for us to be able to look at what are the facts of the issue and then draw a conclusion rather than just automatically thinking that because it's a big company or big companies or a big industry versus an Indian tribe that the Indian tribe must automatically be correct. And I think in this case, the Indian tribe is wrong. And what, and also I don't think that the entire Indian tribe is in favor of these protests or of trying to stop this pipeline. I think it's part of the tribe and maybe even a majority of the tribe, but it's wrong to say that uh, Standing Rock, that the entire group is in favor of trying to stop uh, this pipeline from going under the Missouri River where they're trying to have it go through or having it try to go under the Missouri River. The first thing that I think it's buried in the news about this issue is that this isn't their land. And I would be on their side entirely if this was a battle between them versus big oil because the government wanted to step in and take land, uh, take land through eminent domain in order to have this pipeline go under the Missouri River. I think that I would be on their side because I'm against eminent domain. I'm against it, especially in cases where the government comes in and takes it in order for it to be used for private purposes. I believe strongly in private property rights. And if you don't have strong private property rights, then I think that freedom is, is infringed upon. And I think that, yes, we can have a discussion about is eminent domain in order to uh, you know, build roads or, or do government projects. Is that just? I think it's that's a better discussion to have, but I don't know how anybody can really support, if they actually believe in private property rights whatsoever, can actually support the government taking land and giving it to another private individual or private company because the government in all its infinite wisdom thinks that this is a better uh, use of this land. I think that that's morally reprehensible. I can carry that same logic too. You know, I, I'm against eminent domain for taking land in order for the government to build roads or, or whatever they may want to build on particular land. But I can at least see the argument there. I can't see the argument in the former case versus the latter case, though. Uh, but in this case, it was not Standing Rock land that was taken. This is land miles north of their land. And their whole argument is that this could potentially affect their water supply. And yes, water is extremely important. I get that. I'm not anti-water because I'm not 
standing with Standing Rock on this. I'm not anti-water, but I also understand you can't stop something from happen because from happening because of the possible risk that something could happen. Otherwise, nothing would ever get done. You know, should should people not be allowed on the road because there's the possibility that they could cause an accident, that they could hit somebody? No, they're punished after the fact, and maybe they're prevented from ever being able to drive again or prevented from driving for a long time, but you can't stop somebody from driving beforehand. You can maybe make it more expensive for them to drive, uh, but you can't just stop them from doing something because you think this could possibly harm me. It's not how it works. That's why we. That's why you can sue for damages. That's why we have that system. That's why we have a system of courts. But what they want to do is they they just want to stop this project project entirely, because this has to go under the Missouri River, and really no matter where it goes in the Missouri River, it still poses a threat to them. The same threat. It may be further away, but it still would contaminate the river where they get a majority of their water even if it was to move further north. But that's not the discussion that they're trying to have. I mean, the the real discussion is, let's stop this project. We need to stop these pipelines from being built. But I don't think that they take precedence over other groups that would like to build a pipeline for their benefit. I don't think that one is, is inherently better than the other. I think that if one, so say that the say that the oil companies that are that are building this pipe this pipeline, if there is detrimental effects on the water supply, if it ends up spilling and and injuring people around there, then they're going to be forced out of business. They're going to be forced to pay millions of dollars in damages. They're going to be destroyed, ideally, if something goes wrong. They're taking a big risk to put this pipeline in, so they need to they need to make sure that it works out well. For the survival of their companies, in order to continue to to make the profit, to to continue to pay back whatever they've borrowed to make this pipeline happen, in order to have a decent rate of return on the investment in that pipeline, so they have every incentive to make it safe. Uh, but just because a group of people thinks that that shouldn't happen, I don't think that that is enough reason for force to be used by the government to stop this project from happening. Now, if we knew that this project happening was going to result in water being damaged or in extreme negative environmental impact, if we knew that was going to happen, then okay, there is something to be said for suing in advance and stopping this project from happening. But there's no evidence that that's the case or that it's a likelihood that the water is going to be damaged or that there's going to be extreme environmental impact. There's no evidence supporting that position but really what people are doing and i see this with a lot of people online a lot of my peers posting things you know stand with standing rock all that they see is big oil they don't like big oil and they see the little guy they see a minority group the native americans the standing rock tribe they see people from that tribe and they think i have to be on that side and then things get buried in the story about the fact that A, this is not their land, and B, the fact that they're impeding projects that are happening on other people's land. But then when when the police come out, 
when force is then used to try to push these protesters back or to arrest these protesters, it's then, you know, the man trying to stop this peaceful protest from happening. But on private land, if you if you trespass onto private land, no matter how peaceful you're being, you can be arrested for trespassing. You can be ejected from that land. And I think that's what they need to understand here. I don't care what your political motives are. I don't care how much I agree with your political motives. It doesn't justify trespassing on private land. And you do have the, the possibility of being charged with a crime or of being forcefully ejected off of that land, depending on what the private landowner wants to do. But stories like this just get so distorted and it's become a big deal out here because it, this is costing North Dakota taxpayers a lot of money. It's costing millions of dollars. They've This little area has had to take on all this extra policing burden. The state has had to send in help as well. And it's costing people that don't live there, that aren't going to benefit from this project. It's costing all of us money in order to fund the defense of this project, the defense of, uh, of the private property rights. But nobody sees that when looking on the outside and sharing something on Facebook about stand with Standing Rock. And I, I think it's unfortunate that stories get diluted to like these, these BuzzFeed type of stories where all you see is David versus Goliath. So David must automatically be right. Goliath must automatically be wrong. The real reason why I wanted to talk about this, though, and to bring it back to the points, really the general themes surrounding this show, uh, is to talk about President Obama's response and the calls by Standing Rock and, you know, by a lot of the environmental, tend to be leftists, progressives, you know, not saying that all of them are, but it's that general coalition of people for the most part. This call for executive power to come in and really force what happens with a private project. So Obama said, it was about a week ago, I want to say, I'm going to have a link up to his remarks on the show page on my website. But he said, quote, we're monitoring this closely. And you know, I think that as a general rule, my view is that there is a way for us to accommodate sacred lands of Native Americans. Uh and then another part of the quote, I think that right now the Army Corps of Engineers is examining whether there are ways to reroute this pipeline. We're going to let it play out for several more weeks and then determine whether or not this can be resolved in a way that I think is property attentive to or properly attentive to traditions of the first Americans. So really, even the belief that the president of the United States, that the executive branch of the federal government of the United States has the right to come in and dictate how a private project is conducted. I know the Army Corps of Engineers is involved, uh, but the calls to President Obama and the belief by Obama that he and his, you know, his branch of government has the right to decide, okay, is this going to continue as planned or are we now going to reroute this private project? It's a ridiculous notion, in my opinion, and it's representative of the executive government. They're the executive branch of the federal government run amok. And really, as a result, the federal government as a whole running amok. But the fact that 
all so many people, the people aren't even questioning this. They're applauding the fact that Obama's stepping in, making his opinion heard, and that the that the federal government may get involved or more involved in this project than they already are. It is blatantly unconstitutional for them to be able to come in to North Dakota, to come into this state and determine what's going to happen with a private project happening in this state. It's blatantly unconstitutional. But with Obama coming out and saying and saying what his opinions are, and you can tell just in that quote, him talking about the first Americans and you know we need to respect the, the sacred lands, you can tell where his biases lie. And he's empowering these protesters by making these comments. And I compared it, I was having a discussion with uh, with some people that also live here, so they're fairly familiar with the story. They have an opinion on what's going on, but I compared it to the sit-ins on college campuses. You know, I, I graduated from college fairly recently, and where I was going to school, uh, my second last year there, there was a big occupation of the administrative buildings, and the campus let it go on for a while, let it go on for weeks. They had a lot of sympathy from the surrounding community. There was even some national attention as to what they were doing. And they occupied this building without being forcibly removed. You know, it was the administrative building. And they were occupying office, or areas where students wouldn't even typically be allowed to go. And they were occupying this entire building. But because of all this positive support, and because the administration didn't want to offend the people from outside the college that were on the side of these students, they didn't do anything about it. And these students were empowered. Of course, they ended up ending the occupation conveniently right before uh, the week-long Thanksgiving break. Conveniently, you know, shock shocking that they decided, oh, it's not really worth our time to stay here over our time off from school. You know, we can miss classes to do this for weeks on end, but yeah, once we have a week, an actual week off from school, we're going to go home. We're not going to keep this up. It's not quite important enough to do that anymore, but they were empowered by this. And if you'd put your foot down and removed them initially and said, we, you know, we don't want this to be a distraction. You're occupying area that is not yours and this will not be tolerated. Then it would not have accelerated or it wouldn't have continued to grow wouldn't have become the big issue that it became and really what they were protesting there was there were some changes really I didn't think they had a very good case but there were some changes to uh, funding for there was a particular center for sexual assault and they rolled it into the health just the general uh, like on campus it's not a hospital but it's an area where you can go if you are sick so they rolled that into the existing doctor hospital type clinic on campus and then also they had reduced some funding for scholarships for people of particular races and so it was a lot of different things that they that they were protesting and it, it was generally we need more affirmative action programs uh, we need more professors of color uh, we need these specific we need specific money allocated for specific programs for sexual assault victims and it, it was a lot of these kind of things I think reading through I'm not going to get into the details because it's really not important at 
in this discussion, but I didn't think they had a great case for anything that they were saying and, and for them to make it into that type of scene that they did, I thought it should have been dealt with quicker. But the same thing's happening here. So because Obama's encouraging them from the outside, they have celebrities like Mark Ruffalo coming in. Jesse Jackson came in and called it a case of environmental racism. So getting all this national attention, mostly positive. You know, nobody really wants to stand against Standing Rock because like I said before, it's a David versus Goliath type of story. And how many people root for Goliath in that story? Nobody does. It's our natural human instinct to want to, to want to root for the underdogs. And that's my first instinct, and I'm sure that's everybody's first instinct out there. But you've got to fight those first instincts and actually look at what the facts are in the particular situation. And I already discussed what I think the facts are and why I don't think that uh, the no-dapple people have a real leg to stand on. But I think the issue is people from the outside encouraging this. And this should be a local issue that is determined by people in North Dakota, that's determined by the private companies here and the Standing Rock tribe. And the Standing Rock tribe does not have the right to just impede any private project they want because they think it could negatively affect them. But it shouldn't be a federal issue. There shouldn't be federal money now involved. And Barack Obama should not be dictating what happens with private projects like this within a state. He just should not be. So that's really where I wish more of this conversation was was going. It wasn't if it wasn't just a simplistic big oil versus a Native American tribe. Uh, it's 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 much more complex than that, much more representative of bigger issues that we're having. And I wish that we could have more of that type of discussion rather than people just posting feel good memes and then taking the moral high ground, thinking that they're morally just just because they're on the side of a Native American tribe, regardless of what their argument is and regardless of what the facts are in this case. So changing gears a little bit, I did want to discuss some about the New York Times, about David Brooks, who works for the New York Times, uh, kind of just a few different things I read kind of coalesced together into one thing I felt like I could talk about for a little while on this show. But first I was reading about the New York Times seeing a huge fall in year over year profits. So their profits fell from $9.4 million in the third quarter of 2015 to only $406,000 in the third quarter of 2016. And you know that the headlines, 96% fall in profits, obviously will get people to click on it. Uh, but for them to break even actually is a somewhat decent accomplishment. However, this goes to show that even the big dogs in in the media game, in the mainstream media, are going down. You know, not that the New York Times is going to be closing its doors in the fourth quarter or anything, but they are in trouble. And if you try to go and read the New York Times now, everything's behind a paywall. You can't read anything unless you have a login unless you pay to subs- you pay for a subscription or I you know I haven't even tried it's not really worth it to me to read what the New York Times has to post to pay for it I can look at their headlines I can read what else is out there there's plenty from that side of the political spectrum that I can read for free that's why I think their paywall kind of staving off the inevitable so they're generating quite a bit of revenue from this paywall but 
I don't think that's a, that's a sustainable long-term strategy. There's only more and more content out there, and the vast majority of it is free. You know, 99% of the content out there is free, 99.99% probably, um, and only that minuscule infinitesimal amount has to be paid for. So the New York Times isn't going to be able to do that. There's probably a certain percentage of people that's willing to pay for it. They're so loyal to the New York Times that they're willing to pay for it, but that number is capped at a certain point. And beyond that, you're, I don't think you're going to be able to get more people to pay for a, for a subscription. So that's kind of staving off the inevitable where I think they're going to have to go back to offering things for free to most people, uh, if not everybody, because that's the way the internet's going. You really can't charge traditionally for most services anymore. There are some places where it works and they probably can have some sort of, some sort of subscription service, but to have everything behind a paywall, like that, it's just going to turn off people. They're going to go read the Washington Post or the Huffington Post or Salon or Slate or you know whatever similar types of uh, news sources are out there for them. But I read this right about at the same time that I saw a David Brooks interview where he was discussing the Trump phenomenon. He hates Donald Trump, uh, and he was talking about how the less educated and non-college educated whites are going to vote for Donald Trump no matter what. And the quote was, people are just going with their gene pool. And he was saying this kind of in a dejected manner, like it's too bad that that's how these uneducated white people are going to vote. Uh, and he said that's one of the reasons why Clinton is cam- is actively campaigning in Michigan because Michigan has a lot of white people so that's not a place where she would normally have to actively campaign, but Trump is garnering support because of all these white people, and they're just voting with their gene pool is the language that he used. He also said, uh, it doesn't matter what the guy does, college educated or going Clinton, uh, sometimes you get the sense that the campaign barely matters. People are just going with their gene pool and whatever it is, and that is one of the more depressing aspects of this race for me. And yes, that is happening. I mean, you are seeing white people, especially less educated white people, tending to vote for Donald Trump. Of course you're seeing that. I don't disagree with the facts behind that. But the way that he's basically saying this is too bad, I, you know... People shouldn't be voting based on the color of their skin. And I'm not saying that the reason why white people are tending to vote for Donald Trump, or at least less educated white people are tending to vote for Donald Trump, is because of the color of their skin. But that's kind of what he's implying here. But what's so hypocritical to me is that the New York Times and the mainstream media has talked about... uh, black people voting for the Democratic Party in droves and how can we keep the black vote coming out for the Democratic Party and what they will do is if you try to insinuate that one of the big reasons why Barack Obama was elected president was because he's black and he got the black vote out in ways that nobody else ever really had before because of the color of his skin if you say that they'll they'll act like you're trying to take away from his election, that you're trying to say that he didn't actually deserve it. But it's very similar. You're saying, and look at the facts, you're you're saying that black people voted 
for Barack Obama in record numbers. And that is an undisputable, an undisputable fact. So I looked up the numbers and actually in any sort of breakdown that I found in the 2012 presidential election, I didn't look at 2008, but I assume it was very similar, if not more stark, uh, nothing was a better predictor of which way you're going to vote than if you were black. Even Democrats, even registered Democrats did not vote for Barack Obama at the same rates that African Americans voted for Barack Obama. So 93% of blacks that voted, voted for Obama. 92% of registered Democrats that voted, voted for Barack Obama. And it's stark. I mean, no other, yes, there are tendencies among everyone else. You know, women tended to vote more for Obama. 55% of them that voted, voted for Obama. Men tended more to vote for Romney. 52% voted for Romney versus 45% for Obama. Uh, Hispanics tended to lean Obama. 71% of them voted for Obama. Asians tended to vote for Obama. 73% of them voted for Obama. Young people, really it was kind of, Young people tended to vote for Obama the most. Older people tended to vote more for Romney. So 60% of 18 to 29-year-olds voted for Obama. 56% of those 65 and over voted for Romney. So obviously some of these are predictors of who voted how. But nothing was a better indicator, a more predictive indicator of who you were going to vote for than if you were black. And I don't... I'm not criticizing that, but for them to try to criticize now white people, you know, white people of a certain educational level for voting for, for, for a particular candidate at high rates, how is that any different than what happened with the black vote in 2008 and 2012? And now they're posting articles basically with the Barack Obama imploring people to go out and vote for Hillary Clinton, imploring black people to go out and vote for Hillary Clinton because he's saying black voter turnout isn't looking like it's going to be what it has been the last two elections, and Hillary needs that in order to win this election. And they're posting articles saying that. But I don't get the dis. you know, there's no disconnect there. Those are the same exact thing, but you have David Brooks, the token Republican, on the New York Times staff lamenting the fact that white people are going to lean toward a particular candidate when the same thing has happened much, much starker for Barack Obama just in the last two elections. But because we're talking about white people versus black people, somehow one is okay and the other is not. And it's things like this that just really infuriate people. You know, I read this kind of this kind of stuff and I'm not a Trump supporter, I'm not a Hillary supporter, but I see the inconsistency in how it's reported. And I can see how a lot of people that maybe don't have kind of a set of political values or a set of values that they base their political decisions on, they see this and they say, Well, I can't support Hillary. I you know, I can't support kind of the the mainstream candidate here because of what you know, outlets like the New York Times are doing this inconsistent reporting. They're saying, you know what, I'm going to go with the outsider candidate. I'm going to go with Donald Trump. I don't really have values that I necessarily am trying to get through by my voting. I'm just trying to vote who I like more. And I, 
I can't like Hillary because of all of these types of things. And you're seeing it reflected in their inability to continue to make money because people are getting fed up with it. And that's one of the big reasons why you've seen such a surge for Donald Trump. And I understand it. It's very explainable. But the elites don't understand it. They don't get the inconsistency. Or they think that people are too dumb to get the inconsistency. But they get it. It's so easy now to get this information. Everybody's analyzing what the New York Times puts, puts out there. And the Washington Post puts out there. And they're seeing this is inconsistent. This is not accurate reporting. This is all biased. And yes, everywhere has its bias. Every, every source has its bias. And I think, or at least I hope, that people understand that. There's no such thing as an unbiased source. But when you see these sources that try to proclaim that we are fair and balanced, I know I'm using Fox News' uh, slogan, and they're certainly not fair and balanced. Uh, but when all these other outlets try to make themselves appear that way, it's, it's insulting to the average person, to the people that are being talked down to now, to these, what, the, what David Brooks is calling uneducated whites. It's insulting to them that he's saying that if you support Donald Trump, it's only because of the color of your skin. That's the only reason why you're supporting him. And I don't think that's the case. Just like when we had the Brexit conversation and in my uh, Why Donald Trump Wins episode, I discussed the parallels between Donald Trump's candidacy and Brexit and how both went through kind of similar ups and downs, how everybody was predict was predicting a landslide victory for most of the process for Remain. And then Leave ended up having this huge comeback and winning it. And you saw similarly, it, it narrowed closer and closer as it approached. It still looked like Remain was the favorite. Just like now, it still looks like Hillary's the favorite. But Trump has come much closer and closer than he's been in months. So if you're one of these uneducated whites that David Brooks is talking down to, you stand there, even if maybe you're undecided, but you see him saying that yeah, people in your social class of your demographic are only voting for Donald Trump because they're too dumb to see beyond their own skin color and all they're looking out for is the tribe and their gene pool. Do you think that's going to make you more likely to vote for another candidate, to vote for Hillary Clinton, who the New York Times posts, you know, writes articles every day, basically supporting Hillary Clinton on the Hillary Clinton campaign trail, essentially, and demonizing Donald Trump? Is it more likely to get you to vote for Hillary Clinton? No, it's not. So I think this is just one instance of many that's causing people to be fed up with the New York Times, with the Washington Post, with these mainstream media outlets, because they're biased and because they're talking down to average people. And average people don't need to be talked down to. They can make their own decision. You know, I've talked about, yes, we all have biases, and a lot of times they're made evident in democratic elections. And I've been, I've been critical of democratic elections as well. So I'm not saying the average person is infallible and that the only, the only thing we need to do is put all the power in the hands of, of the average person. I'm not necessarily saying that. 
But I am saying that what doesn't work is talking down to the average person, now expecting them to move toward the mainstream candidate. That's not going to happen. If anything, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make them dig their heels in the sand and they're going to stay with Donald Trump or whatever candidate happens to be representing that group of people in a given time. But to act like any racial difference too and you know what whether it's racial breakdown in particular occupations or at particular universities particular programs at universities to act like racial breakdowns where it's not a perfect representation of the population as a whole i think it's naive to think that that's going to happen that you're going to perfectly have 13% blacks, I mean, whatever percent the U.S. population is of Hispanics, and this percentage whites making up a, a particular occupation. It's impossible to ever actually get that to happen because we've all come to this country with different cultures. Uh, you know, different areas of the country tend to have different racial makeups. Different areas of the country tend to concentrate in particular industries. So it's it's impossible for that to ever actually happen. And it's the same thing with voting. You know, we tend to group ourselves around racial lines. I know in the United States now, more than ever, we're tending to, to mix more along racial lines. So those lines are becoming blurred a bit. But, you know, you have some parts of the country that are 95 plus percent white. And you have some areas of the country that are 30 to 40 percent white, you know, if not less. And in areas where it's 80, 90 percent black or, you know, 60% Hispanic. It there are areas of the country all like that and where we tend where we live, we tend to have similar political beliefs and we tend to support similar candidates. You know, not that that's always the case, but I'm saying we tend to on average. So when that happens, you're going to have say white people as a whole probably leaning toward one candidate. You're not going to have a 50-50 split. You're going to have black people leaning toward one candidate. And it doesn't even have to be out of self-interest. You could have two identical candidates running in the two parties, but just because of the way that whites or blacks tend to align party-wise, they're going to tend to lean one way or the other. Long story short, I don't want to keep going on about this, the New York Times is slowly dying, and I am happy about it. And I think if one good thing has come out of this election, it's that we're starting to see the CNNs and the New York Times of the world start to squirm a bit because they are not unbiased deliverers of information, no matter how much they want us to believe, and they do have an agenda. And if Donald Trump's brought us one good thing, I've said I don't think he's going to be a good president if he wins. Um, I haven't enjoyed his campaign but if he has done one good thing and his legion of followers have done one good thing, it's that they've exposed these people, done a really good job exposing these people. And it's this ragtag group, a lot of Twitter people nobody had heard of prior to the election, people coming off of Reddit and 4chan, and somehow they've been able to expose a lot of the inconsistencies that we've kind of already, we've always known have been there but we haven't been able to prove 100% with real concrete evidence. Then you've got WikiLeaks also joining in that fray. I mean, nobody could have ever predicted 
how this election cycle would turn out and the coalition of people that would come together behind Donald Trump. You know, I'm WikiLeaks, not necessarily that they came behind Donald Trump, but due to the information that they're releasing, they're definitely anti Hillary Clinton. And as a result, they've kind of become part of the Trump train a bit. Uh, but it's just been, it's been interesting to watch. And that's been one of the positives that I've taken out of this election. I've, I've been trying to come up with some positives. And I think that's one of the few that we can take out of it. I think the big negative is we are going to have Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump as our next president. And I'm not happy about either one being in the White House. However, not much I can do about that at this point, And we've known that for months. So I've been trying to scrape together a few positives that I can talk about. And maybe post-election, I can talk more about those positives. I think another positive we could potentially see coming out of either a Clinton or Trump win is that people are going to start to realize maybe we shouldn't have so much power vested in the executive branch. You know, maybe we shouldn't vet, maybe we shouldn't have one person have this much power because all it takes is for somebody dangerous to get into office and they could screw everything up because we've created essentially a monarch a monarch not in the sense of hereditary passing down the, the right to rule but something like a democratically elected king or queen within our executive branch and if we elect the wrong person a lot can go wrong because of all the power that person has and that's not how it was supposed to be under the constitution so that's one of the other positives maybe we can take out of this if if things really do go to hell over these next four years regardless of whether it's hillary or trump as president maybe more people are going to start to come to that realization start to realize you know what maybe the executive shouldn't have so much power maybe we should go back to more constitutional government maybe we should return some power to the states and to our local governments so that this person that i hate in the white house in washington dc can't control my life as much as he or she has in the prior four years so that's my hope my ultimate hope i don't no, it's going to happen. I'm I'm not necessarily optimistic that enough people will wake up to that. I think they'll just concentrate on, okay, now in 2020, I've got to make sure my person gets in there. My guy or girl's got to get in there next so that it's not this person I hate running my life from afar. But that's not sustainable because all it takes is for your person to lose. And if you hate the other person, then that person can really screw with your life. Now, I also don't think that there's that much of a difference between our choices and that either way, our life, our lives are going to be pretty similar. And I think things are going to get worse over the next four years, regardless of who's in there. So I also don't want to say that I think that that much in my personal life or your personal life hinges on the selection, but it does change a bit. Uh, so I'll be following that over the next couple of days, and I should have another episode out right after the election, I'm assuming. If anything comes up over the next couple of days, I may do one beforehand, uh, but I'll probably discuss the fallout from the election and where I see everything going. And I'm still expecting a Donald Trump victory, so I think I will be discussing the future of this country with Donald Trump at the helm and his upset of Hillary Clinton. But I very well may be discussing 
a Hillary Clinton victory and, and where this country is going with her at the helm. So thank you for listening. Looking forward to talking to you then. Really, I'm depressed about either outcome, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this also are. But I appreciate the listens and looking forward to talking to you again soon.